Let the sunrise light up the morning. The purest of prayers will not bring us back. He whose candle was snuffed out and was buried in the dust. Bitter crying won't wake him up and won't bring him back. Nobody will bring us back from a dead and darkened pit. Here, neither the victory cheer nor songs of praise were help. So just sing a song for peace. Don't whisper a prayer. Better just sing a song for peace. Shout aloud. Allow the sun to penetrate through the flowers. Don't look back. Let go of those departed. Lift your eyes with hope, not through the rifle sights. Sing a song for love and not for wars. Don't say the day will come. Bring on that day because it is not a dream. And in all the city squares, cheer only for peace. So just sing a song for peace. Don't for peace. Don't whisper a prayer. Better just sing a song for peace. Shout aloud. Welcome to the Critically Zionist podcast. In each episode, we'll deliver an in-depth discussion of the issues facing modern Zionism in Israel, all while enjoying one of our favorite Israeli beers. I'm your host, Shuki Hartuv, an Israeli tour guide for Hartuv Tours. And with me, as always, is Noam Zuckerman, the most well-read young Zionist around. Those are the words of Shirla Shalom, the song of peace, whose lyrics were found covered in blood in the breast pocket of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's suit jacket after his assassination. Just moments before his death, he joined Foreign Minister Shimon Peres and Israeli singer Miri Aloni singing those words. Today, we've got a tough task of trying to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. But before we delve into that, Noam, what are we drinking today? Thanks, Chuki. Definitely not an easy way to start. But at least I've got a little beer to take, a, to take a little bit of the pressure off. So this is actually a new beer and a new brewery for me. I just opened a bottle of Hagibor Brewery's Extra Stout Craft Beer. Hagibor Brewery is in the northern town of Carmiel, and it was established in 2012. Hagibor translates to the hero in English, and when thinking about the heroes of Israel, it's hard to find a better example than Yitzhak Rabin, a man who came as close as Israelis get to nobility, exemplifying the highest Israeli values from his youth through his army career and as a politician until his tragic death 25 years ago today. Today in the, Isra- in the Hebrew calendar, and when this episode airs, hopefully it will be the American anniversary of his death, November 4th, 1995. In finding the perfect beer, the brewery was clear, just had to find the right flavoring from everything I've heard about Rabin and knowing about real Israelis in general, the extra stout was the only way to go. Rabin was a, both a war hero and a hero for peace. The hero we needed is Israel to start a risky but necessary endeavor to pursue a genuine peace with the Palestinians. I hope that soon enough we'll find new leadership that can find its way back to the journey he started. L'chaim. 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 So let's get started. On Saturday evening, November 4th, 1995, 25 years ago, Yitzhak Rabin, the first Israeli-born, or I guess Palestinian-born, prime minister, born in Israel, was assassinated by Yigal Amir, an Israeli law student at Bar Ilan University, and a religious right-wing extremist. It happened at the Kings of Israel Square in Tel Aviv, now renamed after Yitzhak Rabin, Rabin Square. After a peace rally under the slogan, Yes to Peace, No to Violence, 
with over 100,000 supporters in attendance. The assassination represented the beginning of the end of one of the most hopeful and also divisive eras of Israeli history, the peace process between the Palestinians and Israelis initiated by the Oslo Accords, a groundbreaking agreement led by Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization with strong support from US President Bill Clinton and honestly the vision from Foreign Minister uh, Shimon Peres. It's hard to begin tackling such a heavy subject whose repercussions it feels are still palpable in Israeli society today. So where can we begin? Noam. Uh, Chuki, I think I do three things. I think we need to start by understanding who was Yitzhak Rabin, what did, he re- what did he represent for Israelis as a person, as a figure, as a soldier. So we'll start with that. And then I think that the next thing that we need to do is we want to go a little bit deeper into understanding what were the Oslo Accords, what was this peace process that started between Yitzhak Rabin, Yasser Arafat, and Bill Clinton, and how has it left its mark on the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians until this day. Um, and then I want to try and figure out, like, what the hell has happened in this country, this country of Israel? I'm in Israel right now. Shuki's in Canada because he ran away from Corona. I want to understand what is going on here and what has been happening since then. How has it left its mark? So let's Great, do so it. Let's, let's play ball. So let's start with topic number one. Who was Yitzhak Rabin? Just to give a little bit of a biography, Rabin was born in Jerusalem in 1922, but his family moved to Tel Aviv when he was still a baby. He studied agriculture at Givara Shoshak Kibbutz, which his mom helped to found before transferring to the legendary Kaduri School to continue his agricultural studies. He did not want to study English because it was the language of the enemy. You have to remember at that time it was British Mandate Palestine. It was not Israel at the time. At the age of 14, he joined the Haganah, the precursor to the IDF. And at 19, he joined the Palmach, the Haganah's primary strike force, starting a 27-year military career where he was always at the center of Israel's most significant military accomplishments. In 1948, he commanded the Harel Brigade, responsible for many of the most notable battles and victories and defeats in Israel's independence war and continued to rise the ranks in the IDF until serving as the chief of staff during Israel's miraculous victory in the Six Day War. After leaving the army, he served as Israel's ambassador to the US from 1968 to 1973 and again rose the ranks in Israel's labor party before being elected prime minister for the first time in 1976, where he oversaw Operation Yoni, the legendary Entebbe rescue, and some say laid the groundwork for the peace treaty with Egypt, later signed by Prime Minister Menachem Begin. He stepped down after a scandal over his wife's US bank account before serving as defense minister in the late 80s during the first Intifada and his second election as prime minister in 1992. As prime minister, aside from the Oslo Accords, He signed a peace treaty with Jordan, and many say he was responsible for strengthening Israel's economy, education, and healthcare systems. So let's unpack all of this. That was all in one breath, right, Chuki? All in one breath. Exactly. I think the first thing to start with is Robin was Israeli. He was a Sabra, and in doing a little bit of research about him, I found the perfect description of the type of Israeli that Robin was. It came from Bill Clinton's eulogy after Yitzhak Rabin's funeral. I mourn with you for he was my partner and friend. Every moment we shared was a joy because he was a good man and an inspiration because he was also 
a great man. Yitzhak Rabin lived the history of Israel. Through every trial and triumph, the struggle for independence, the wars for survival, the pursuit of peace, and all he served on the front lines. He was a man completely without pretense, as all of his friends knew. I read that in 1949, after the War of Independence, David Ben-Gurion sent him to represent Israel at the armistice talks at Rhodes, and he had never before worn a necktie and did not know how to tie the knot. So the problem was solved by a friend who tied it for him before he left and showed him how to preserve the knot simply by loosening the tie and pulling it over his head. Well, the last time we were together, not two weeks ago, he showed up for a black tie event on time, but without the black tie. And so he borrowed a tie, and I was privileged to straighten it for him. It is a moment I will cherish as long as I live. Those were Clinton's words. That's not about me telling you, <laughs> talking to your wife and saying that I couldn't find it, that I had to give you a tie or help you put on jeans or something like that. Something down to the core of Yitzhak Rabin to the level that the U.S. President Bill Clinton remembers that is usually as at his eulogy was his informality. The fact that he didn't he didn't need to put on a tie to be a serious person. And I think oftentimes I was thinking about it. A lot of the times we say that about Israelis, that they, they don't know how to get dressed and they don't know how to do themselves up to whatever they're doing. And a lot of the times it's kind of like Israelis are disrespectful, but we let it happen because they don't know better. And Yitzhak Rabin was one of those like few opportunities where it was genuine. It was he didn't care about the fluff and he just wanted to do work. He wasn't being disrespectful. He just had, he had more important things to think about. And to hear that from Bill Clinton, who I'm sure was putting on ties from I don't know what age, and to understand that those two work together on the on the political level, on the international politics, to me, that's who Yitzhak Rabin was at the beginning. He was an Israeli through and through and through. Right, he's totally this guy who's this man of action. And sometimes the action wasn't necessarily the best action, but he was a man of action who really took all the things that he did very seriously. And the epitome of this is really the rivalry and friendship, rivalry, whatever you want to call it, with the other giants of the Labor Party in the post-Ben-Gurion Golda Meir years, which is Shimon Peres, where Shimon Peres was a man of words. I'm not trying to denigrate him, but he's someone who is an incredible, incredible orator, someone who's an incredible writer. And Rabin wasn't that. Rabin stepped up when he needed to to speak and he spoke honestly. And what was nice about his speeches is that he spoke from his heart, but he didn't have this kind of beauty with words the way that Paris did, where Paris could in a way just inspire or just convince you of anything, just the way that he spoke. And Rabin was this man of action that really, if he felt like this needed being done, he would do it. And the, he and Paris in a way are these last socialist hawks, if you will, it's, uh, it's a really good phrase to think of it that way, where both of them grew up in this field of being generals and being defense. And uh, Shimon Peres was the minister of defense for many years, just like Rabin was minister of defense for many years. Rabin was more of a soldier. Shimon Peres was more of a 
military planner, if you will. But both be, let's grew- be honest about Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres, at the age of like 22, became a career bureaucrat. He was like the assistant to the Minister of Defense, who I think was Ben-Gurion at the time. Shimon Peres was born in Poland. He had an accent until the end of his life. And I think that like, if I hear what you're saying correctly, Shimon Peres really represented the next generation of those first Israelis who came to Israel to build a new society. And Yitzhak Rabin was the first example of what could be built in this country. And Bill Clinton talked about Ben-Gurion sending Rabin out onto a mission. I can just imagine Ben-Gurion, who also had an accent until the day he died, looking at Yitzhak Rabin, sending him out to a diplomatic mission after the independence war and saying, we made something good, you know, like tapping Herzl on the shoulder and being like, we couldn't do what he's doing, but he's doing something. And this is a new type of people. And we did it. Right. In a way, Shimon, what you're saying, I guess, that Shimon Peres is in that same cloth of he's the pioneer spirit who's that idealist who's trying to make something happen. And Rabin is the thing that happened. And both of them are happening simultaneously at the same time. And both of them leading the Labor Party at exactly the same time. And there's this innate rivalry that took place between the two of them that brought out most of the time the best in each other. Uh, you can look at the latest season of Hayyudim Baim to get a sense of what that rivalry uh, was all about in a way. But in a way, it was the vision of both of them that was able to lead eventually to Oslo, which we're going to get into a little bit later on. But the thing, the event of Rabin's life that really stands out to me is what's outlined in the book, The Prime Ministers by Yehuda Avner, which is Rabin's willingness to become the ambassador to Washington and uh, ambassador to America in Washington. And wait, 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 Chuki, wait a second. We're talking about Rabin. You're skipping to the political. We need to give a second to talk about him being a soldier. And I think that one of the things that we need to say, and and you know what, like I'm with you, I want to skip over it as well. But Rabin was always in the center of the wars. He grew up in the army and he he was kind of like this commander that Ben-Gurion wanted. He was in the Palmach, but he was willing to, to tie a tie and to put on a nice uniform. And he led Israel to the victory in the Six Day War. And what's really interesting about the Six Day War is that there you see Rabin did all the hard work. He prepared the IDF to be the army that we know it is today, the superpower. And he did all of the work before and he got the soldiers ready, built their confidence. But the story about Rabin is that he, he, he either had an anxiety attack or he was smoking too many cigarettes and he wasn't functioning during the war. So quickly during the war, they kind of like reduced his profile. They said that he even tried to quit, um, but he stayed on. Um, and though he had this kind of like during the actual war, he had these issues. It was the work that he had done in, in the previous years, you know, both as chief of staff and before that as one of the, the most significant commanders to build the, to build the army. And it, and it wasn't a stain on his record what happened during the Six Day War because everyone knew the man that he was. And after finishing as chief of staff, he moved on to politics. And now, please continue telling us about Ambassador Robin. No, and it's interesting that even though he, in a way, wasn't present during the actual six days themselves, but it's his image with Moshe Dayan walking to get to the Western Wall that is that famous image, one of the most famous images from that war of him actually arriving at the Kotel, being this native Jerusalem born 
uh, leader making it to the Kotel uh, for probably what might have been the first time in his life. So it's just a really interesting image in that way. And to further that and to make a bridge into this time that he was the, the ambassador in D.C. is what happened in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, where Rabin was in a way absent from the 1973 war, much more so than he was absent from the 1967 war, where he's absent from 1973 because he's the ambassador in America. And just as the war breaks out, David Ben-Gurion, uh, kind of the, the dreamer that allowed for someone like Yitzhak Rabin to succeed, he suffers a brain aneurysm. And David Ben-Gurion doesn't actually ever know that Israel survives at the end. He has a brain aneurysm just as the war breaks out, and he thinks Israel might be wiped off the face of the, off of the map. And then he never recovers from the brain aneurysm. And in a way, it's really, I don't know, fitting that the most tragic and difficult war that Israel faced in 1973 is the war that Rabin, both Rabin and Ben-Gurion were absent from, uh, from the planning and from the action that took place. And then what's really interesting is during the time that Rabin was uh, ambassador in Washington, as I was going to say before, is that as, as we mentioned, he didn't want to learn English as a kid. So his English actually was pretty poor. And he insisted and insisted that he wanted to be the ambassador to DC. Um, and eventually they let him do it. And he does an incredible job and he's able to um, forge these relationships with the United States that ends up really helping him later on with connecting uh, with the American government and with the Egyptian government in order to make peace with Egypt in 1979 and 1980. So it's interesting that that all really sets up the peace that Menachem Begin in a way gets all the credit for with Menachem Begin and Sadat, but already as ambassador to, uh, for Israel in America, Rabin was setting the stage for peace with Egypt, which was the greatest enemy that Israel faced at the time. Yeah, and I want to I want to add on to that. You said it wasn't natural for him to be the ambassador in Washington, and I think that that goes to kind of like what was so special about the Israeli image that Yitzhak Rabin presented. A lot of the times they talk about it as he became the career soldier. He wasn't sure if he wanted to be a soldier, if he wanted to be a farmer, but he went where Israel needed him. And we said, you know, obviously he's not that natural born diplomat. He's not the rhetorical speaker that Shimon Peres is or that Bibi Netanyahu is, he does work. Um, and I think what he realized was he needed to be the guy in, in the U.S., even if it wasn't easy for him. Um, and that's something that you can see throughout his career. Like, I wonder if he wanted to be a politician or if he just did it because he, he knew that he needed to. Um, and I think that that's something that you see even when he's the prime minister which is something that I know today we can't even ever imagine. But shortly after he became prime minister and after he, ha he had successes, he continued with his diplomacy with Egypt and he was responsible for Operation Yonatan where, where, the, Israel, where the IDF rescued, what was it, like over 100 hostages from Uganda and brought them back on, a, on, a, on, the, on one of the most astounding military missions of all time on America's 200th birthday. Um, and after all of that, it came out that his wife still had an American bank account open um, from the time when they were in the U.S. I, I remember it being a small, a small amount, but we were just looking on Wikipedia and it looks like it was like $10,000. 
And the second that his name was connected to the scandal, he stepped down from the prime ministership because he didn't want it to bother, like he didn't want it to take attention away from his work as the leader of Israel. And can you imagine that? A leader of Israel stepping down when his name and his honor is, is not convicted or anything like that when it's questioned because he didn't want to distract from what's going on. It's hard to imagine that living in the, in the background that we're living in today. Um, I think $10,000 is the same amount that Sar Netanyahu spends on pistachio ice cream every year or something like that, but that's besides <laughs> the point. Right. And it's like, just, just hearing this stuff, it's like sad. <laughs> I kind of wish he had continued being prime minister because I feel like Israel would be a better place, but I, I'm just so full of admiration from someone who is, who is principled even in the, in the biggest stage. I feel like back in the day, we thought that that was the way a prime minister should be. But like, we're not there anymore. We're very far away. And, you know, it takes days like today and, and days like remembering people like him to, to remember what, what politicians can really be. Right, think- but then eventually, eventually after this whole scandal, he comes back into the political life in the late 1980s. And he's met with a really interesting task, which um, is the task that really defines this transition between Rabin as a military leader and a political leader where both of them were coming to a head where he was minister of defense during the first intifada in the late eighties and the early nineties. And during that time, there was this huge civil unrest, one like that had never been seen before in Israel, where you have bus bombings, you have stones being thrown at cars and really the first uprising, the first intifada is taking place. And Rabin, who's someone who grew up in military with a military background sees conflict and he responds in the way that a military man responds, which is, you know, breaking bones, which is going it as what it's uh, always quoted to saying, where he goes into different towns and there's different operations and different missions. And now there's this big divide, this big device, a big divisive uh, attitude between Palestinians and Israelis. And Rabin, I'm not going to say he's the cause of all of this, but his reaction to the first intifada, not that I know what the best reaction would have been, but his reaction to the first intifada was not reacting necessarily to civil unrest, but he reacted in the same way that he reacted in 1967 when there was conflicts between Syria and uh, Jordan and with Egypt. And he reacted like in 1948, where you're fighting against five different nations and, uh, and local uprisings. And it wasn't necessarily the best way to respond in this situation. Right. He responded to civil violence. It was violence, but he responded to it with military violence, which, which was what he knew from, from previously. I think when we were talking yesterday, one of the things that you said was, it's understandable that he was reacting that way after his history, but like, that's not the attitude that you need to, to make peace. That's not the attitude that you need to overcome the differences that were, that were being um, that were being shown during the first intifada, right? Like something was coming out of the Palestinians, a feeling of frustration. And the way that Rabin reacted, in your opinion, and in my, and I totally agree with you here, is that it was unacceptable. Not unacceptable in that he, he was a bad person for doing it. It was just, it was the wrong way to react, even though it's very easy to understand why he re- would react that way with the history that he had um, as a military general. Look, and obviously we're looking at this with great, great, great hindsight and see the first intifada as 
first intifada, knowing that later on there's going to be a second uprising that's going to be even more deadly and all the things that happen to come. But in a way, if the reaction might have been better, not that we're blaming the victim in a way of the intifada, which was also the Israeli people. We're not saying that the Palestinians are the only victim, that Israelis were also victims in the first intifada with tens of Israelis that were Israeli very, soldiers. Were let's make this very clear. We are not saying that Israelis were not victims. A hundred percent. They are critically um, Zionist, but we are Zionists and we believe that Israelis were victims. I don't want to get into anything more than that, but, but we're trying to understand, you know, both sides are in a frustrating place. Palestinians are reacting violently to genuine frustration, but that violence is affecting Israelis and Israelis deserve the right to defend themselves. It's just a really hard situation because right. that's and what Israelis. And had there been some sort of civil solution to the civil unrest as opposed to civil unrest leading to a military solution, maybe there could have been something that would have come out of this that would have led to different things. And that leads us perfectly to our second topic, which is the Oslo Accords, which we're going to discuss a little bit about what the real impact of the Oslo Accords and the peace process that Yitzhak Rabin, Yasser Arafat, Bill Clinton, and uh, Shimon Peres were really pushing in the early 1990s as a way to stop this first intifada, to stop the violence that was taking place on both sides. And this period that we were speaking about right now, the first intifada, in a way, changed what Rabin had to think. It, it gave him a paradigm shift. Rabin was a soldier and a hawk as a politician, and Arafat was his sworn enemy. As defense minister during the first intifada, he ordered the IDF to break their bones in reference to treating Palestinian protesters. He was elected in 1992 as prime minister for the second time by forming a coalition with Labour, his own party, Shas, the Mizrahi Orthodox religious party, Meretz, the far left-wing party, and the Arab parties, to defeat Yitzhak Shamir and the Likud, and together with Clinton and Arafat, went on to pursue the Oslo Accords. Rabin would ultimately die in pursuit of this peace process, with his copy of the song Shir Shalom, which we began the episode with, covered in blood after singing during the ceremony. So how do we understand this part of Rabin's legacy? What's the role of Oslo in Rabin's life? Well, I think you have to start with kind of the shift that Rabin made in his personality from where he was in the defense minister during the first intifada and ordering to break the Palestinians' bones, as we've already said a few times, to how do you get to pursuing a peace process as a military man with your sworn enemy? And I think that Gershom Gorenberg, a prominent left-wing Israeli journalist, has a little quote that, that really helped me understand when I was reading it. Every chapter of a book changes the meaning of all the chapters before. Every day, each of us writes a new chapter of our book. Rabin's bio includes harsh chapters. In the final chapter of his life, Rabin broke the mainstream Israeli taboo, recognized Palestinian nationalism, and determinedly pursued peace with the Palestinians. No Israeli leader and few, very few leaders anywhere have shown the same kind of courage. It, it's simple words, but it, it's from someone who, who is pretty far left-wing, who, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but he sh he's sharing that Rabin went through a genuine change. It wasn't that he got to be prime minister and he tried to make a move, this is what his advisors were saying or whatever else. 
there was something that happened to Rabin after the between the first Intifada and when he became the prime minister leading towards the peace process where where he understood that there needs to be a different way of relating to the Palestinians. Um, and, and, and the key word here was that he recognized Palestinian nationalism, right? Where during the first Intifada, he saw the Palestinians uh, uprising as, uh, as civil unrest or, or as, as violence against Israelis. And later he realized that there was a scream, that there was a claim coming from the Palestinians that they needed a country, that they, they were a people who didn't have a way of expressing themselves on a national level. And he understood that for Israel's, in order to pursue Israel's best interests, he had to allow the Palestinians that voice and that, that opportunity. And that's really what led him to the peace process. And it was See, a change. Agree, it's not I where he was before. I agree and disagree with you. I don't think there was any change in Rabin. I think that Rabin, again, as we mentioned before, was this great military leader and is also someone who pursued peace. He's someone who made peace with Jordan, kind of as part of this Oslo Accords, but was also, the, in, in a way, the person who initiated the peace process with Egypt and someone who wanted to find some kind of good relationship to build a relationship between Israel and America, that he was really one of the, really the person who made it so that America was Israel's number one ally that supplanted France to be Israel's best friend, because that wasn't uh, necessary. It's not, we think of it nowadays that America was always the number one backer of Israel, but really France was in the 1960s and not even as much America. And Rabin was very much a part of building that relationship. And I think those are these two facets of Rabin's life that always permeated that he found peace between the Haganah and the Palmach. He found peace between Israel and America, between Israel and Egypt, between Israel and Jordan. But he was also this very harsh, kind of strict military leader as well. And I think the Oslo Accords was, okay, well, it didn't work when I tried to bash their heads. It didn't work when I tried to arrest them all. Okay, I'll do my other mode and try to do this peace accord. But maybe this peace accord wasn't even the right solution because it's not like he was dealing with a unified nation the way that he was under the dictatorship of Egypt or under the democracy of America or under the dictatorship of the Haganah under David Ben-Gurion. That you have this different kind of leader with Yasser Arafat that I don't think Rabin really ever trusted, nor should he necessarily have trusted him. And I don't think he necessarily did. I don't know if Oslo really would have ever worked. It didn't promise the Palestinians a capital in Jerusalem. It didn't even promise them a state. It kind of said eventually there might be a state and they never even dealt with the refugee issue. Oslo was this beautiful dream that there might be these two nations that live side by side. But ultimately for the Palestinians, they look at Oslo and see, well, we don't really get that much out of this deal. We're not getting the things that we want the most. So was it ever really going to be a success? I, I, I don't really know. And, I, and that's why I wonder about, did Rabin really change? Like I think Rabin basically was doing what he was doing his whole career, which is either forging peace or fighting war. And he chose the forging peace, which is very admirable but I don't necessarily know if that was, again, we're looking in hindsight and seeing all these things in hindsight. But in the end of the day, like maybe there needed to be a third alternative of someone who would find some sort of civil agreement that didn't have anything to do with military. Well, I'm also in favor of the Mashiach having existed and having been the prime minister of Israel, the Messiah. Um, it would definitely be pretty cool to have just like someone with no nothing wrong with them being the leader of Israel. 
Um, but I'm definitely not going to complain about the efforts that Yitzhak Rabin was able to of make. Of course, of course. Um, and I think that's a point that, that is true that, that like I really do agree with in what you're saying is that Rabin was always willing to, to kind of like get over the political disagreements um, in order to do what needed to be done to do something good, whether that was the relationships that you were talking about, um, building with America after France uh, abandoned Israel, or whether it was allowing the, I think it was, I think Paris was really big on pursuing the talks with Egypt. Um, and Rabin was a little bit more hesitant, but he wasn't going to say no. And he let it happen because it, it was what was right to happen. And I think you can see that again with, with the Oslo Accords, where he probably wasn't like the most excited about it at the beginning, um, but he let it happen. Um, and it's not like he let it happen begrudgingly. He understood the importance of it and, and he gave it his backing, even if he was a little bit suspicious about it. But I think that he did go through a genuine change, not in that he like all of a sudden started trusting Arafat or this or that. I think he really understood um, and allowed the, the hope for peace to fill up his heart and to become his priority. Like he was, he was full of defense his entire life. And he was full of how do you protect Israel? And I think he realized that the only way to protect Israel was to get over the, the military aspects of it and to really pursue the peace. But I want to use, uh, I want to use his, Rabin's own words from the Oslo Accord. This signing of the Israeli-Palestinian Declaration of Principle here today, it's not so easy. Neither for myself as a soldier in Israel's war, nor for the people of Israel, not to the Jewish people in the diaspora who are watching us now with great hope mixed with apprehension. It is certainly not easy for the families of the victims of the wars, violence, terror, whose pain will never heal, for the many thousands who defended our lives in their own and, and have even sacrificed their lives for our own. For them, this ceremony has come too late. Today, on the eve of an opportunity, opportunity for peace, and perhaps end of violence and wars, we remember each and every one of them with everlasting love. We have come to try and put an end to the hostilities so that our children, our children's children, will no longer experience the painful of cost of war, violence and terror. We have come We have come to secure their lives and to ease the sorrow and the painful memories of the past, to hope and pray for peace. Let me say to you, the Palestinians, we are destined to live together on the same soil, in the same land. We, the soldiers who have returned from battles, stained with blood, we who have seen our relatives and friends 
killed before our eyes. We who have attended their funerals and cannot look into the eyes of, of their parents. We who have come a we have, who have come from a land where parents bury their children. We who have fought against you, the Palestinians, we say to you today in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears, enough. <laughs> we have no desire for revenge, we, have no, we harbor no hatred towards you. We like you, our people. People who want to build a home, to plant a tree, to love, live side by side with you in dignity, in empathy, as human beings, as free men. We are today giving peace a chance and saying to you, and saying again to you, enough. Let us pray that a day will come when we all will say farewell to the arms. Pretty, it's pretty deep. I'm a little surprised that I didn't tear up, but Rabin in no way is not is um, is ignoring the challenge for Israelis of pursuing peace with the Palestinians. Um, he understands not just the the threat of violence that the Palestinians represent against Israel, but also kind of like the pain that Israelis harbor in their hearts, um, suffering um, at the suffering like the the fear and the terror um, of the Palestinians, and he really understands that fear but he's not going to let that fear stop him from pursuing this opportunity, which can, which can create a paradigm shift in the Palestine-Israeli conflict, which can maybe get over um, the wars. Obviously that's not what happened, right? We're far, far, far from peace, but that was kind of, I think it was something that, that he realized and it was different. You know, I think before that he wouldn't have been able to say, Hey, let's stop this. Let me, let me listen to you. You know, he would have said, stop doing what you're doing or I'm going to break your bones. Right. And then to move a little bit forward after Oslo was the reaction from the right in Israel, which again was not part of Rabin's coalition that uh, led by Bibi Netanyahu, who was the head of the Likud party. They held dozens of rallies after the Oslo agreement and during the Oslo agreements, all these different meetings and all these things that were taking place, there were dozens of rallies that, were, that basically continued to incite hate and violence and fear um, against these ideas, against these ideas of hope and these ideas of peace and this distrust in the Palestinians and distrust in Rabin. And this eventually led to the darkest period in Israel's history where there's a fellow Jewish person, Yigal Amir, who took all, of these, all this hate, all this incitement, and took it to an extreme and assassinated the prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, where during the speech that he gave in Tel Aviv, during this peace rally that Yitzhak Rabin, um, in response to all of these rallies, had the rally of all ages in Tel Aviv. 
where over 100,000 participants came to not just hear Yitzhak Rabin, but to hear Shimon Peres and to hear any number of different peace activists to say, not just we support the Oslo Accords, but stop with all of the violence and the fear that we all have to give peace a chance. This isn't just the left wing trying to force this ideology on the whole country, that this should be the whole country backing peace the same way that we did with Egypt, the same way that we did with Jordan just two, two three years before. And Rabin, in his really emotional address to the, to the audience there, the, the largest rally in Israel's history, that uh, to this audience there, he says his own military ID number and says, I'm no longer a warrior for uh, in war, but I'm a warrior for peace. And after singing Shir La Shalom and putting the Shir La Shalom back in his breast pocket, he walks down the stairs and goes down to, uh, towards his car, but then Yigalamir shoots three bullets in his back, saved a few bullets to try to also assassinate Shimon Peres, but he was able to escape just in time. But it's really this tragic moment in Israeli history that killed the Oslo Accords. Not that the Oslo Accords, as I mentioned before, were necessarily going to be the be all and end all of peace. But when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, that was really the end of the peace process. And you know what's so hard for me about this? Like, forget it, right? We're 25 years away. And at the end of the day, as hard as it is to kind of like have this conversation and really talk about it and be critical, because this is like when I read about Yitzhak Rabin getting killed, like every time it just, it just makes me sad, you know, as an Israeli, as a person, as whatever else. But like what, what's the hardest for me here is that I feel like this peace process was the first time that Israelis were able to really um, embrace the idea of hope and the idea of hope for peace. We never allowed ourselves to do this. And it was like, Robin allowed a huge portion of the society to finally embrace hope. Um, and he did it understanding that there was antagonism and he did it understanding that there was a difference of opinions and he was willing to pursue it. Um, but the other thing that came out of here was just like, you understand the depth of the divisiveness and the polarization of Israeli society, that there was the side that Robin was on. And then there was the side that Yigal Amir was on and it just ended it um, and we realized that there was so much hatred on, on, the, on that opposite side um, and, it and it had enough power to kind of take away the hope that Rabin had brought um, and it's just so sad and yesterday when you, you reminded to me that the, that the coalition that Rabin led had shots inside of it and I wonder what party Yigal Amir voted for? I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't vote for Shas. Like it's, it's, a huge, it's, it's crazy how you can have kind of like Shas in the coalition. And then you can also have someone who probably comes from a very similar background to a lot of the people who literally voted to have this coalition in power. And he's the one who assassinated the prime minister. And it's like, Israel didn't think that that could happen before, but the assassination let us know that it can happen, you know? They say that Robin chose not to wear a flak jacket, a uh, bulletproof vest, because he just didn't think that it could happen in Judaism or that a Jew could assassinate the prime minister. Right. This is despite posters of calling Rabin a traitor and with targets around his head and Rabin being dressed as Hitler. And there's a famous speech that 
Netanyahu gave in Kikar Tzion in Jerusalem, where there's a coffin literally behind him that is this coffin of the peace process. But and it's and it's this tragic thing that every single year since the assassination on November on the Saturday night of November 4th, what would have been this Shabbat, what would have been this Saturday night, there's this amazing rally every single year at Rabin Square that sometimes is more successful than other years. You know, the 20th anniversary, Noam and I were both at the, uh, the, the speech when Clinton came and uh, spoke for the 20th anniversary of the assassination. And sometimes it brings a few tens of thousands of people, sometimes it brings 70, 80,000 people out to these rallies, depending on who the speakers are and who the organizers are. But what's really interesting to me and what always makes me the most depressed about this is that there hasn't been a single Rabin rally in all of in the 24 years, 25 years of Rabin rallies that have been since Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, that the prime minister for most of those years or for many of those years, Bibi Netanyahu, has never come. He's never come and said, listen, I was there. I took part in this incitement and this violence. I never, ever, ever would have wanted Yitzhak Rabin to be assassinated. And I'm truly, truly hurt and so sorry that my words could have been taken to this level of this extreme that, I, that led to the assassination of prime minister. He doesn't have to say that he's sorry for assassinating Rabin because he did not assassinate Rabin. But right, Rabin, and he's clearly not happy that Rabin was assassinated. It's not like he's clearly he's not happy that Rabin was assassinated. It's just and, you can probably say that his political calculations uh, allowed him to not um, stop it or to not do more to stop it. Look, I'm not saying that if he were to appear in Kikar Rabin, which he's never spoken from in general, not even just for Rabin rallies, he's never spoken at the most prominent square in all of Israel. Um, and were he to go and speak, I think he would get absolutely booed by all of the <laughs> leftists in Tel Aviv and probably deservedly so. But I think it would really, if Bibi Netanyahu ever were able to grow the cojones that he claims to have, I feel like that is the move that really would be a legacy changer for Netanyahu that with all of the hate and incitement between the right and the left in Israel that he has very much been part and parcel of this growing uh, dynamic of distrust and hate between the two sides that if he were to come and speak in Tel Aviv at the Rabin rally especially uh, or at Kikar Rabin and especially at the Rabin rally I don't know, maybe I'm just too rosy-eyed, but I feel like that would be something that could make people come All right, together. well, Shuki, let's not give ideas for how Bibi could maybe continue to be prime minister because we don't want that, or at least I don't. Um, but I want to add something, and I think I told you about this, but this is something that hopefully will come up in a future episode. Um, and it's kind of crazy to think about it, but um, Yitzhak Rabin was the chief of staff who gave Bibi Netanyahu's older brother, Yoni Netanyahu. He was the outstanding soldier of uh, Kursk Tzinim, of officer school, and he was the one who gave him the, the wings. Now later, um, Yoni was a, I think he was studying at Harvard um, when Rabin was the ambassador to the U.S., and Yoni's wife, his first wife, was, was like working in the Israeli consulate or something. And she took the picture of Yoni Netanyahu getting his pin from Yitzhak Rabin. She took it to him and she got Yitzhak Rabin's autograph. Wow. And there, are, there are a few more things, but 
Yoni Netanyahu really, really respected Yitzhak Rabin. They had very different political views, like the entire Netanyahu family is very hardcore right wing. They are Likud. Their father was kind of like, it was either him or Begin that was going to lead the Likud party, or which was uh, then the Gachal party or Khairut party. Um, but Yoni Netanyahu had a tremendous amount of respect for Yitzhak Rabin. And I'm assuming that Bibi did as well. But this is kind of like what you were just talking about. That's the that's the way that the history turned out. And that does, probably does because of Bibi's political aspirations wouldn't let him, you know, speak from the from the heart and stop his and stop his followers. It does come across that way when when he speaks about Rabin in the Knesset, uh, when they do the memorial service for him in the Knesset every year. But what is interesting in those Knesset memorials is that they memorialize his yurtzeit by the Hebrew date, while Tel Aviv does the rally closer to the English date, regardless of whenever the Hebrew date is. And I always find that interesting because in a way it makes it so that Israelis don't, because uh, most Israelis, definitely the secular Israelis, don't really follow when the Hebrew date is. And they often kind of forget when this Knesset memorial is going to take place. And it in a way makes it so that it's in the back pages every year whenever they have the Rabin which, Memorial. Which I want to talk about now. I want to move into kind of like the end of this discussion, but today is the Hebrew day. Um, and this morning I went on all of the Israel newspapers to kind of like check what they were saying about Rabin, just to make sure that I kind of like had it for this discussion. And in the morning, there was almost nothing. Um, the morning Israel time. And I was really frustrated about that. I was like, what? How are you not recognizing it? Like, this is the day on the Israeli calendar that says we're remembering Yitzhak Rabin. I think Ynet was the one who had it, like, who had kind of like a really significant thing. They, they initiated a, a really cool commemoration with a lot of videos of, of prominent Israelis now, kind of like reacting 25 years later. But Haaretz said nothing. Uh, the Times of Israel, I think, had very little. And the, and the other websites had, had very little. Luckily, I went on a few minutes before we started this conversation. And now I saw Haaretz has it on the front page, has one article about it. And they have like a section about it. And they had a little more. But it was interesting. Like in the morning, there was nothing. Now there's a little bit. But yeah, it's like the, the way that we remember Robin and the way the way the way that it kind of like is in our minds like i wonder what it's going to be like on november 4th the, the the anniversary of the english date when we'll hopefully air the episode but it but it's weird this this whole idea of the memory and i think that that's what that's the way that we should conclude this conversation by kind of remembering the way that we remember like what's happened since Robin and how do we remember him in Israeli society? In the aftermath of Robin's assassination, Bibi Netanyahu went on to beat Shimon Peres in the following election. They took a, a big step back from the peace process and the hopes that, that we had been discussing simmered. For the next decade, power alternated between the right, left, and center with Ehud Barak, Ariel Sharon, and Ehud Olmert taking turns as prime minister before Bibi's second and current reign, which has been going on for how many years? Oh, like 70, 80 years. <laughs> uh, there were unsuccessful attempts at continuing the accords and implementing a two-state solution. There was a second intifada, and there have been a handful of substantial military operations in Lebanon in 2006, and more recently and repeatedly in Gaza. Two of them we were sort of a part of, 2012, you and I were soldiers, 2014, Operation 
protective edge in English. We were both in Miluim and we were living right next to Gaza and Kibbutzad. Instead of Israeli and Palestinian leadership coming together, as Rabin had started then, there's currently no dialogue. And instead we see movements for civil resistance and attempts to delegitimize one another on the international stage. That's kind of like a quick summary. What do you think defines the aftermath of Rabin's attempt at a peace process? I mean, we mostly kind of discussed it about the kind of the legacy of Rabin in a way is the legacy of the peace process that since Rabin's assassination, there's all this discord between the right and the left in Israel. And in a way, the, the subject of, of Palestinian statehood and what Oslo was trying to do has really disappeared from the, from the discourse in Israel. That even during the Intifada years, it was about how do you separate from the Palestinians? And it wasn't about how to empower the Palestinians. And there's, you know, this in a way myth that you know, when Ariel Sharon built this wall around the West Bank or the separation barrier on the West Bank and which, which a lot of it is wall and a lot of it is, and most of it is fence. But when that was built, that that is the thing that kind of stopped the Intifada when it really wasn't the thing that stopped the Intifada. What stopped the Intifada was when Yasser Arafat died and Mahmoud Abbas, who took over for the Palestinian Authority, had a whole different tactic of how to, kind of torture the peace process, which is status quo. And Netanyahu, who became prime minister, said, well, I'm fine with torturing the peace process. I don't really want a peace process. I'm fine with status quo as well. And both of them just kind of allowed this thing to hang in the air in the Middle East, in the world, in Israel. And it's just there. And Right, like the status quo of not taking the risk for peace, of saying okay, this situation is hard. We fight wars or we deal with terrorism all the time, but we're not going to take the risks that Robin was trying to do to make peace. And here I want to, again, I apologize, but I'm going to bring words from, the, from Robin from the moments before he died, from the speech that he made at that rally that we've been talking about. And he said, I've always believed that the majority of people want peace, are prepared to take risks for peace. And you here, by coming to this rally, along with the many who did not make it here, proved that the people truly want peace and oppose violence. Violence is undermining the very foundations of Israeli democracy, must be condemned, denounced, and isolated. This is not the way of the state of Israel. Controversies may arise in a democracy, but the decision must be reached through democratic elections, as happened in 1992, when we were given the mandate to do what we were doing and to continue to do it. This uh, I'm skipping a little. This rally must send a message to the Israeli public, to the Jewish community throughout the world, to many, many in the Arab world and throughout the entire world, that the people of Israel want peace, support peace. And for that, I thank you very much. Are those words still true about the Israeli society? Um, I do think the majority of Israelis want peace. I think that there's a so many- Wait, outside of Tel Aviv. Yeah, yeah, I really do. (laughs) I think if you go to Efrat, they want peace. If you go to any number uh-huh. of different, if you go to any number of different places all over Israel, everyone wants peace. There's no doubt about it. The question is, what are you willing to do to make peace? And what do you think are the stumbling blocks to peace? And are you able to have that kind of discussion without a handgun? Are you able to have that kind of discussion in a peaceful manner? And that's really the issue. I, I think Rabin is absolutely right. And I don't think he's going out on a limb saying that, Everyone wants peace. Netanyahu wants peace. Everyone wants peace. 
as you can see from the latest peace accords or whatever treaties with the different Arab nations around Israel right now. But Netanyahu loves embracing this idea of peace and wants to go to the White House and have the same kind of fanfare like the Oslo Accords had and, and everything. But he, but it's about how do you achieve this peace and what are you willing to give up? Because peace isn't just, as Rabin says, and as, and as Noah, um, as what's her name? Noah Rotman, the daughter of, Yitzch- uh, the granddaughter of Yitzhak Rabin, quoted Rabin saying is that you don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And it doesn't look like there's any effort from much of Israeli society to actually reach out and make peace with enemies. Instead, it's making peace with like half friend enemies. Like, okay, fine. Like UAE, like, well, we have business interests there. They have business interests with us. All right, we can make peace with them. No, no big deal. It's not really going right. on. Another, another topic that we really hope to get into in the future, but you know, what? like I, I agree with you. I think that that's a really good point. A lot of Israelis want peace. Most, the vast majority of Israelis want peace. They just kind of, they want it on their own terms. And I think that's something that Robin and the hun- over 100,000 supporters he had at Israeli and the people who held up his government showed a majority of Israel who was re- willing to do the hard work for peace, who was willing to make a genuine connection with the Palestinians and to enter an accords and a process that was hopefully going to lead towards a real peace. And I think since the assassination, I wouldn't say that that's true anymore. I would say that now the majority, and I don't know numbers, and I, but I'm not hopeful about how high the percentage is of the people who are willing to do the work to make peace and are willing to take the risks that are necessary to respect the voice of the Palestinians and to pursue a genuine peace. And I hear Robin saying it, and I hear him talking about a majority, and I hear the, the numbers of over 100,000. And I just, you know, I say we made Aliyah in 2011, and that's not the, that's not the Israel that, that I've gotten to know. And I really dream of, of that Israel coming back. And I wonder, I wonder what's the, what's, what are the steps we need to take in order to find it? And I wonder who's going to be the leader that's going to do it. And I just think that, like, see videos of, of Rabin. He is an amazing museum now that they've done in memory of Yitzhak Rabin. And the first video shows Robin leading the country and telling the country that we do not pursue violence. We do not condone violence and we pursue peace. And I don't see the leader who is able to say that convincingly. And I really, really want to find it. You know, I just like every day I look at my little daughter and your little daughter and I say, who's the one that can lead them on this journey? Right. And it's, it's this really strange feeling that everyone is waiting for Rabin to come back. And it's been 25 years. And we're waiting for someone to really go out on a limb and make peace. But in a way that they have this military background that like, yeah, they want peace, but they also understand security. But this goes back to my discussion from before about Oslo, that like maybe the wrong approach all along was having someone like Rabin try to make peace when he is this, you know, he has this military background. And that really leads us to the point that I want, the final point that I wanted to get into about our, the legacy of Rabin, which wasn't really about what's happening in Israel, but really about what happened just this year uh, in America was trying to memorialize Rabin, that there was the Americans for Peace Now announced about, announced that for this year, for the 25th anniversary of Rabin's assassination, in order to discuss peace, uh, I'll read their tweet, which was Rabin's legacy inspires us all. 
join AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the left-wing congresswoman from New York at APN's Yitzhak, Americans for Peace Now's Yitzhak Rabin's 25th year memorial on October 20th. Hear her reflect on fulfilling the courageous Israeli leader's mission for peace and justice today in the U.S. and Israel. So it's just, it was a tweet that was talking about how excited it is to have someone like AOC who didn't grow up knowing who Yitzhak Rabin was and probably only very recently in the last couple of years really would have learned about Yitzhak Rabin's legacy and what it means, you know, as she's like learning things on the national and international scale. And of course, she's going to speak at this peace event. This is something that if you're supporting left-wing causes, you support Yitzhak Rabin and the Oslo Accords and all these things. But then um, Alex Kane, who is um, a left-wing Jewish activist, writes, so AOC is doing a memorial event for Yitzhak Rabin. In the U.S., Rabin is viewed as, viewed as a liberal peacemaker. The Palestinians remember him for his brutal rule suppressing Palestinian protest during the first intifada as someone who reportedly ordered the breaking of Palestinian bones. So AOC responded to this tweet and said, hey there, this event and my involvement was presented to my team differently from how it is now being promoted. Thanks for pointing it out, taking a look into this now. And she drops out of participating in the event. Noam, what happened here? I was like genuinely hoping that you were gonna skip talking about this topic because it is a huge topic. Um, and we've been talking for a long time and I feel like we need to do an episode or a few episodes about this, about like- And we'll do a whole how, episode for sure about like the relationship how, between- We'll no, do an episode like, about how the relationship. How does today's Palestinian movement, um, who is mostly kind of like rhetoric um, in the diplomatic and public sphere, you know, kind of like presenting ideas about Israel, um, and it's much less focused on like the, the actual diplomacy between Palestinians and Israelis working to, to, to create a peace, you know, like on the ground. A lot, of, a lot of the discussion about Israel and Palestinians is kind of like in words on the Internet and, and in all these other places. And it's like in Israel, there's nothing going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians um, for better and for worse. And the way that all of these people kind of like deal with the memory of Yitzhak Rabin, first of all, I think I need to learn a lot more about it. But like my first reaction was like, what? Like Rabin was like the best for the Palestinians. Uh, how could someone be saying that? And then like I read a little bit and I read a little bit, you know, on like different than like 972 and other places that I'm not used to, to learning about. And and yeah, you know, like like we were talking about before the Oslo Accords, there's a lot to say about Yitzhak Rabin's um, antagonism towards the Palestinians. Um, and I think for good reason, just like there are for a lot of Israelis, myself included, you know, like when I was in the army, a friend of mine from my unit was killed in while we were serving and he did not deserve to die. And I and that was a very, 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 very hard experience for me. But I don't know, like where just because of the fact that I'm willing to to fight for Israel and against the Palestinians doesn't make everything that I do against the Palestinians. Right. Um, and I think that we're going to definitely save a topic for Israel and diaspora relations and Israel and the left in, in America and all these different kinds of things. I'll just give like a brief from the Tel Aviv perspective is I think that Tel Avivim are looking for a leader like AOC 
whether it's looking at Mirav Michaeli or Stav Shafir or Itzik, Itzik Shmuli, looking for someone who's a young, active, you know, looking for all these liberal, progressive, uh, you know, leader. And they were really heartbroken by AOC, that this is someone who's a role model for the Israeli left in a way, especially in Tel Aviv. And there's no city in the country more that venerates the legacy of Yitzhak Rabin more than Tel Aviv. And to hear these things from, from AOC that she didn't learn enough about it before she was going to speak at, speak at the event and then backs out of the event and, and then hides behind her, uh, her advisors as like them being the ones that, you know, encourage her to do it in the first place and she should have known better. Like, come on. And everyone's just really disappointed in that kind of, uh, everyone's just really disappointed in her. And I think that's really the sense that I just, that was the disappointment from all of this. Yeah, I think these, are, these are also the repercussions. And this is another topic that we hope to get into. Like when Israeli society, like a lot of the things that come out of Israel is, is about the violence that exists here and the historical violence. Like we're a country that a military conflict is a big part of our history. And anytime you talk about anything that comes out of a conflict, you know, like obviously there are going to be things that are really hard to deal with, especially when you're talking about America, where nobody in America has to experience war. In America, people really experience civil unrest, right? They really, ex the protests that are going on right now are real, but they're civil unrest, like they're not military conflict. And I think right. that like it's, really hard for Americans to understand this kind of a conflict that we're dealing with, which is, which you, which is like a combination of a military conflict and civil right. unrest. And there's something that's really hard. And, and there's lots of room for criticism, both of Rabin and of Israel and of everything that's going on. It just needs to be nuanced. Um, and I hope but ultimately, like, ultimately AOC sees conflict in a way like in America where, you know, this conflict between Democrats and Republicans in a way, but that ultimately that's something that can be solved in an election and, you know, and, you know, a peaceful transfer of power and things like that. And it's hard to see Israel as this democratic state that has an issue that you would assume could be just solved in an election and it can't be, and it needs a lot more than an election. And, uh, and yeah. And maybe it can, maybe some of it can be, but like, it's really hard to hear people kind of like just discredit anything good about Yitzhak Rabin. And, and that's the truth. You know, like I really admire Yitzhak Rabin. I don't think that he was perfect, but, but like I really respect the things that he did. And it's so hard to, to hear someone like go back and say there was nothing good about him because before he was prime minister, he was a soldier. And it's and like, and the response that Noah Rotman again gave to AOC, as I said before, is that you don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. And that's true of both sides, that Rabin was viewed as an enemy, Arafat was viewed as an enemy, and both of them, in a way, had to make peace with each other in order for peace to end up happening. And, and we're commemorating the inability of that to actually happen. We hope that this discussion this was light a on pretty this. heavy discussion, <laughs> as I think we should have expected. Um, but it is inspiring remembering a leader like Robin, even with his faults that we were just talking about. Um, he, he definitely exemplified the success of the ex Israeli experiment until his tragic death. Um, and it can help us think about the way 
that we can move today's society into a better place, whether it be reaching out to the Palestinians or looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking what we need to do to make sure Israel stays a country that we can be proud of. All right, so we hope that this discussion shed light on, the critical, on one of the critical issues facing Zionism today. And we look forward to continuing the conversation in the future, though we're not sure when the next episode will be. Thank you for joining us on the Critically Zionist podcast. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, or whatever platform you found us on. Send us an email to tell us your thoughts and, or send us suggestions for future episodes at criticallyzionistpodcast at gmail.com. Look in the episode description for the uh, for details. You can follow Shuki on Twitter and Instagram, me, Shuki, at uh, Tours, And we look forward to our next episode. My name is Shuki Hartu. And I'm Noam Zuckerman, and I want to give a quick shout out to another podcast that I work on, which is called Padrash with Rabbi Leon Wienerdau. It gives a really nice, interesting, new and uh, open perspective on Judaism, kind of a new way of Midrash. Um, And you can check it out on www.padrash.org, P-O-D-D-R-A-S-H. All right, I got to go take care of my kid.